0: Today's reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 44, verse 18 through 45, 15. But Judah approached him and said, my Lord, please let your servant speak personally to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, for you are like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, my Lord, we have an elderly father and a younger brother, the child of his old age. The boy's brother is dead. He is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him to me so that I can see him. But we said to my lord, The boy cannot leave his father. If he were to leave, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, If your younger brother does not come down with you, you will not see me again. This is what happened when we went back to your servant, my father. We reported to him the words of my lord, but our father said, Go again and buy us a little food. We told him, we cannot go down unless our younger brother goes with us. If our younger brother isn't with us, we cannot see the man. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One is gone from me. I said he must have been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him again. If you also take this one from me and anything happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs down to Shul in sorrow. So I came to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us. His life is wrapped up with the boy's life. When he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Then your servants will have brought the gray hairs of your servant, our father, down to shul in sorrow. Your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, if I do not return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Now please let your servant remain here as my lord's slave, in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all his attendants, so he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers, but he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please, come near me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here, because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Return quickly to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me the Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me without delay. You can settle in the land of Goshen and be near me, you, your children, and your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and all you have. There I will sustain you, for there will be five more years of famine. Otherwise, you, your household, and everything you have will become destitute. Look, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin can see I'm the one speaking to you. Tell my father about all my glory in Egypt and about all you have seen, and bring my father here quickly. Then Joseph threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin wept on his shoulder. Joseph kissed each of his brothers as he wept, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray together. God, thank you for uh, the ways in which you show us In your word, what it means to be in community. God, we have our own definitions of community. We have our own definitions of how we should make up. We have our ideas of what an apology should look like. We have our ideas of what it means to be the offended and the offender. God, I pray that you would disavow us of all of that. I pray that you would give us your heart, what it means to seek out genuine reconciliation, what it means uh, to seek out a genuine wholeness in our relationships and even what it means to have wholeness in the ways that we view ourselves. God, I pray that as we uh, come to this portion of this story, that we would see ourselves here and again, that we would not look for all the ways we can be the hero, but will you show us that you indeed are the hero and we can find our, our greatness, our joy, our, our idea of being innocent in you and not in us pray that now in the power of your spirit. Amen. When I lived in Hawaii, I spent a little bit of time working part-time at Nike Town, Honolulu. Loved it, got all kinds of discounts, met all kinds of athletes. You know, this was in Hawaii, so whenever the Pro Bowl would come, all of these superstar athletes would come. They would get a thousand bucks a piece. I never understood why millionaires get another thousand dollars to shop in the store, but they were all Nike-sponsored athletes, so I met all kinds of folks. I got to interview one for this big marketing event. It was a lot, of, a lot of fun. All kinds of folks would come through. And whenever they would come through, people would just treat, put out the red carpet. I and mean, they would treat them so well. We had everybody from Will Smith to, to state senator Barack Obama before he ran for president to uh, various athletes to various politicians. We just had a little bit of everybody that would come in. And people would fall over themselves just to serve them fall all over themselves just to, to, to size up their foot and get them the right basketball shoe so they could say, I waited on this person. Now, working for Nike, you always hear this story about the man who started Nike, a man by the name of Phil Knight, Philip Knight, Uh, is, uh, is the man who is responsible for turning it into this incredible global empire. The swoosh is probably the most recognizable piece of sports apparel in the world. Anywhere you go, you see that swoosh. Any country, everywhere I've ever visited. I see others too, but you see Nike everywhere. And one of the things that Phil Knight recognized was this very thing I started with, that people are often inclined to treat the big wigs, the people who matter, quote unquote, to treat them far better, to roll out the red carpet and do whatever they have to to make life good for them. And so what he would do is he would dress up like like what we would see as somebody who is disheveled, unkempt, bereft, crazy clothing, hair all over the place. He was just kind of this kind of guy that would say, I'm gonna walk into Nike town and I'm gonna see if anybody waits on me. I'm going to see if anybody shows me the kind of attention they would show Will Smith. And so if you ever were an employee of any Nike store, you always heard this, because he would come into even our store before and just walk in, even after he's no longer CEO, but he's kind of this kind of resident guy that he still has an office there, and people still treat him like the king. And so he would come in completely disheveled. You'd have no idea who he was, and indeed, people would not wait on him and he would come back in dressed up to the hilt and read them the riot act and basically lay out to them, this is not the type of customer service we wanna be known for. We wanna be known as people that are gonna show the same kind of attention, the same kind of care, the same kind of concern regardless. Now, this this kind of mentality isn't new. They've made a whole television show based off of something known as the undercover boss, right? This idea that if you're a boss or you're a leader, Um, There are two things you really want to know when you do something like this. I I would want to know if I'm the boss or the leader or the CEO, I want to know, A, how I'm viewed by the people, but also I want to know how I should be viewing you. You see, I may not be able to know exactly who you are when you know I'm the boss and I'm around because you're going to put on, you know, all of these, you're going to put on the right costume. You're going to say the right thing. You're going to be on your best behavior when I'm there. But when I'm not there and other people who don't have the initials behind their name or don't have, uh, the per- I'm not the person that signs your check, how will you treat me? So the undercover boss wants to know a number of things. How closely are you following kind of our business ethics? How closely are you, are you following the things for which you were trained? That's the idea. In other words, how do I know where your level of integrity is? Do you still do the right thing when no one's looking? But even more so when we look at this story, we're seeing a little bit of an undercover boss and an undercover brother here. Because this whole time, Joseph is around his brothers, but they don't know that this is their brother. He keeps himself hidden. Now, why is he doing this? Before we even jump into these chapters 44 and 45, why is Joseph taking this approach? Because it's more than just, I want to make sure that there's good customer service here. Why is Joseph taking this approach of hiding, withholding his identity to his very blood brothers? Why does he do this? You see, whenever we are, we already know he's been hurt, he's been harmed, he's been sold out. Whenever you're hurt or harmed, we talked about this last week, how do you know when or if you can begin to trust the person who harmed you? How do you know when is the right time or if it's the right time to be able to enter into relationship again with people who have harmed you? Well, in Joseph's case, he shows us one clear, very clear principle. In order for me to be able to trust you, I cannot give you all of myself yet. I have to withhold certain things until I know for sure that the things that caused the division, those things, whatever was happening at a heart level for you, those things have transformed. Until then, I can't trust you. So Joseph is in this situation where he's got his brothers on edge because they just know this ruler of Egypt is, is giving them the business, is going out, is telling them, you guys are spies, you guys are this, you guys are that. Now, why is he doing this? <clears throat> My daughter asked me a really good question today. Paige, you were asking this in the kitchen and it's like, you know, when you really think about Joseph, did he really have the right to like put his brothers through all these tests? Like, what, isn't he just kind of rubbing it in? Isn't he almost punishing them? And that's a fair question because it, when you look at what happens, it absolutely looks like, man, he's really trying to stick it to them. He's really just trying to punish them, makes them, makes them uh, go all the way back to their home, makes them go all the way back and, and bring the youngest boy back, knowing what it will do to the father, makes them take all these trips, lots and lots of time elapses during this time. And he's making them go through all these tests and all of these trials, and it just feels unfair, like why wouldn't just, I'm sorry, be enough, right? And yet he does this. Is he punishing his brothers? Is he really punishing him? Is this a, a classic case of karma, everything coming back to bite them, them reaping what they're sowing? Is that, is that really what this is? What we see, and hopefully as we walk through these texts, you're going to see Punishment and retribution is not at all the heart of reconciliation. Even if you've been the one offended, if you're going to reconcile with the person who hurt you, it cannot be rooted in retribution. It cannot be rooted in anything punitive. That is not to say that there are not consequences and there are not things that that may have to happen because of what's been done. But ultimately, if you are the one saying, I am moved to try to reconcile with this person on whatever level, it can never be rooted in punishment. And it isn't. And we're gonna see this here because when you look at Joseph's heart and his posture, it's really interesting what he does. Look at the first few verses in chapter 44. Joseph commanded his steward, fill the men's bags, with as much food as they can carry and put each one's silver at the top of his bag and then put my cup, the silver one, at the top of the youngest one's bag along with the silver for his grain. So he did as Joseph told him. So you see already he's getting to this point where he's, he's sending them home. They've, they've followed his orders. They've brought the younger brother. He is obviously wanting to know first. We talked about this last week. He's wanting to know, okay, first of all, I need to know, that the character of my brothers have been transformed. Because before they were the type that would sell out the younger loved one, the younger brother who was shown so much compassion and love by the father, before they were the type to sell him out. So so they wanted to make sure that he wanted to make sure they aren't still the type that would sell out the younger brother. They're not the the type that would do harm to the younger brother. I want to know that the younger brother is even alive right now. So they bring him. They do everything he asks them. And then he's sending them on their way. And they're thinking, wow, we, we can't believe this happened. But they, the whole time they've been waiting for the other shoe to drop. They've been waiting for some kind of punishment, nothing. They're getting sent back home with all of this grain and money. And he sends them back. But then he says, he tells his steward, his servant, he says, by the way, put my special, my special silver cup, put it in the younger boy's sack. So, so he plants evidence, right? Now, thankfully, he plants evidence with the hope of reconciling not with the hope of actually doing more harm. But he puts it in there. He, he has this silver cup in, and the, they don't know it yet. At morning light, the men were sent off with their donkeys. They had not gone very far from the city. When Joseph said to his steward, get up, pursue them in, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Isn't this the cup that my master drinks from and uses for divination? What you have done is wrong. And when he overtook them, he said these words to them. They said to him, why does my Lord say these things? Your servants could not possibly do such a thing. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found at the top of our bags. Remember the silver that was put last time? How could we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If it is found with one of us, your servants, he must die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. They're going out of their way to say, we, have, we are not guilty of this. And if you think one of us is guilty, then whoever, whichever one of us did the, this dirty uh, thing kill kill us and let the rest of us be your slave. I mean they are really going out of their way to show we're not this sin is not upon us. We're not guilty of this thing. Now, a few things here that that I wish we it would be great if all of us were fluent in Hebrew for a text like this. One of the hardest things about reading the Old Testament is that because the Old Testament is in Hebrew, it is far better for us to understand it in its original language because there aren't chapter breaks and verse breaks. We actually miss the poetry that's intended in a text like this. What Hebrew scholars scholars remind us of is that within 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 this particular passage, there's some incredible poetic elements that are meant to remind us of something. Remember, the majority of the people who are listening to this story they're, they're listening to this being read aloud. They're not reading this. They're hearing the story over and over again. Why? This is an oral tradition. This is an oral culture. You needed to remember important, uh, important principles. You needed to remember important attributes about God so they would write and use literature that would be easily remembered and easily retold. And so what you notice here, we miss it in, in, in English translations. But what's really interesting is how many times you see the word silver being used here. If you recall, all the way back to the beginning of Joseph's story, he ends up being sold for what? Silver, 20 pieces of silver. He gets sold for 20 pieces of silver. That word silver is the Hebrew word kaseth. That word kaseth is used exactly 20 times to this point in the story. It's the last time we see that word being used in Joseph's story. Every single Hebrew boy and girl, when they heard this, they remembered and they knew that 20 meant something. They actually knew, they, they recognized something here that even in the midst, and Joseph's gonna repeat this again, even in the midst of these horrific, evil, horrible things that's happening, somehow God is trying to remind us that he's still sovereign over that. Yes. Somehow he's trying to remind us that even, for those of us who have been hurt, harmed, victimized in any way, horrible things, and there and are hard things to get through, we can so often remember and almost memorialize the details. And the details matter, but we almost hold on to those details in a way that could cripple us as opposed to holding on to those details in such a way that says, and man, God is sovereign even over this. There's some way, somehow, that we have to be able to even find some level of comfort, maybe on the other side of it, to go, wow, God, you even, even in the midst of things, nothing go- gets past you. Even these little details you care about, these little details you're using somehow. Maybe in ways I don't get, maybe even in ways I don't agree with, but you're using them. And so you see this this incredible poetic element that's added into the story that we can't overlook. And so now all of a sudden these these boys are, uh, these young men, most scholars say that by this point, Joseph is probably 40 and Benjamin, young Benjamin, maybe in his late 20s, early 30s by this point, and you have him, uh, they're going back and they find out all of a sudden that, that Joseph thinks that they stole something from him. And so they said, hey, listen, if, it's, if you find it with any of us, your servants, he must die and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. And the steward replied, what you have said is right, but only the one who was found to have it will be my slave and the rest of you will be blameless. So each one quickly lowered a sack to the ground and opened it. And the steward searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each one loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Now, there's something to really, there's a big turn here. When we ask the question, this is the question that every one of us has to ask when we are in a situation where reconciliation is necessary. The idea behind reconciliation, again, is not to see if your behavior changes. The idea behind reconciliation is if your your heart has genuinely been transformed. Behavior modification is never the goal. It's a byproduct of a very necessary goal, right? But the behavior changing alone is never the primary goal. The primary goal is, is there genuine transformation on a heart level? So whatever it was within you that made it possible for you to harm me in this very deep, incisive way, whatever it took for that to happen, has that changed? See, that's what Joseph is trying to find out. He's trying to find out on a heart level, have have things changed? Before, you were capable of, of doing these things. Not just capable, it was highly likely, highly probable that when you stood to gain from something, you would do this. How do I know for sure that that's not there? So is he really punishing them or is he actually testing them and giving them a full opportunity to truly be repentant and reconcile? The other thing that's interesting is now we're starting to see they're they're behaving differently than they did before. Look at the comparison here. All of a sudden they see, okay, can you imagine all the brothers standing there in line from oldest to youngest, and they're going through sack, cutting it open, cutting it open, cutting it open. Get to the youngest boy, the one that they already feel super guilty because they're like, we've got to make sure we protect him because we don't want to have his blood on our hands like Joseph's blood is on our hands. So they're looking, and they see their baby brother, standing there with Joseph's silver cup on the ground. And they know what this means. Their younger brother is going to be a slave. Sent over to the Egyptians, the same way that the other brother they sold out. Had, that was his plight. They've got to go back to their father and say, Dad, another one of your sons is gone Forever. What would they likely do? Would they make up another story to not make, you know, to tell him that he got killed by another animal? Who knows? But they see all of that in the moment, but something changes here. Because if you recall, when Joseph got sold into slavery, they didn't tear their clothes, they tore his clothes, didn't they? They took his blood soaked coat, tore it in order to sell a lie to their father, right? When it was time for them to, to, to gain off of their brother's loss, they were all for it. But now, when their brother now looks like a loss to them, they can't help but to mourn. They're like, we, we are completely broken over losing our brother for all these reasons. See, there's something about repentance, and we're going to keep talking about this. There's something about a repentant heart that actually moves you to grieve when, when a potential loss is before you. There's also something about a, a reconciling heart that says, Okay, before, when I sinned against you, that was because your loss was gain to me. That's why I sinned against you. Whatever it was that you were going to lose in this, it didn't matter because I was going to gain something out of this. And that's why I did it. But something changes now because now they're going, no, actually, losing our brother is not a gain to us. It's a loss to us. There's something about, even if it's not blood relation, within the, the family of God, there should be something in us that goes, losing you is actually painful for me. Losing you should never be a gain for me if we're reconciling. Now, if we're still siloed up, sure. That person gets on my nerves, don't really like the way they talk, don't like where they are politically, don't like X, Y, and Z. I don't want to be around them. If I lose them, no big deal. See, that's not the heart of a reconciler. That, that's actually not. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't sit in very difficult situations and maybe in some disagreeing kind of conversations, but it should never turn into, you know, I just, I just can't be around this. That's, that's not the heart of a reconciler. So, so now when you look at uh, how their approach is changing, you're noticing that these, these men, they're actually looking a little bit more transformed than they did before. The moment they hear that their younger brother is is going to be taken, you know, maybe the old ones would have been like, good, finally, we got another goody two-shoes out of the way. Let's go back, tell dad. Another one bit the dust. But no, they're broken. They're brokenhearted. So they tear their clothes. They tore their clothes and each one loaded his donkey and returned back to the city. So they go all the way back to go talk to Joseph, knowing what they're probably going to face. And when Judah and his brothers reached Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell to the ground before him. What is this you have done? Joseph said to them. Didn't you know that a man like me could uncover the truth by divination? Now, what a lot of scholars will tell us is that the Egyptian way of trying to read dreams and read the stars and read the skies and all the ways that they would use ways to tell the future, they would typically take a cup and they would use that cup and say some things, do some things, a lot of different theories on what that looked like. But this cup of divination was in some way, some form of like reading the stars and reading the skies and reading the the elements in order to know what the gods might be saying to them. So who knows? Joseph might have held him, be like, y'all can believe all that crazy stuff you want. I got God, but I will keep drinking. We don't know for sure. But he's holding this cup and he's letting them know, don't you know that I can, I, I know God shows me these things. So, so why would you think that you can get away? He's laying it on them thick, knowing that they are innocent. And he says that to them and they say, what can we say? Look at their response. Here they are. Here they are, knowing that they're innocent in this moment. In this particular moment, they're innocent. And Joseph is telling them, why did you think you could get away with it? Knowing that they're innocent. And look at their response. What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. How can we plead? How can we justify ourselves? God has exposed your servants' iniquity. We are now my Lord's slaves. Both we and the one in whose possession the cup was found. You know what's interesting here? First of all, look who the person is that's talking like this. This is Judah. Do you remember who Judah is? You remember what Judah did, right? Who was the one that hatched the plan to sell Joseph to begin with? Judah. Who was the one that actually had no problem seeing his brother be treated like a piece of uh, 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 cattle, treated like a piece of merchandise? Who, who was the one that actually had no regard for the life of his brother? It was Judah. And now Judah is the one speaking up saying, I'm willing to lay my own life down in order for my brother not to suffer. There's, this is what it ha- actually happens when you're a reconciler, especially if you've offended someone. If you've offended someone, this is, this is one of the hardest things for us, especially as westernized, individual Americans to get, because the sad thing is we get to determine how, how much apology is a good enough one. We get to determine, like, what does is, what is holistic uh, repentance really look like? So we could say, I did enough. You should be happy with that. But that's actually not what, 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 the, what the scriptures show us. What well, the scriptures show us is if I'm genuinely wanting to reconcile to you, I'm willing to lay myself down at your mercy to earn your forgiveness. I, You know what that means? You don't get to determine if you've done enough. If you've hurt somebody, you don't get to determine if you've done enough. You don't get to say, well, I said this already. You should be happy with that. Nor do you get to say, it could have been worse. You should be happy I didn't do that. That's actually not what what a record. You know what that is? That's what a person who is very self-defensive and self-focused and even kind of self-worshiping. That's actually what that looks like. But here, Judah Before, this is a transformed Judah, because this transformed Judah goes, listen, I know what you, you notice how he tries to change the terms? He actually makes the terms worse. The terms were, "Whoever whoever it is that actually stole this, they stay my slave. The rest of you go, why is Joseph doing this? Because he's trying to test their character again. He's trying to see. Before, they would sell out one brother for the rest of them, but now they'll lay all of their lives down for the one. There's a heart transformation happening. Judah jumps up and changes the terms because Ju- Joseph has already said, whoever's the one that's guilty, stay here. No, he says, no, 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 no. You're, you're right. We're guilty. Even though he, kn- he knows he didn't do it. And he probably knows his brother didn't do it, but it doesn't even matter. Whatever evidence you have, you know why? Because there's something else about a reconciling heart that says, you know, even if I got away with this, I know that I'm, that I actually deserve all of this punishment. Even if you don't know how much I've done, I know how much I'm actually in, what I actually deserve here. And so you know what? If I've got to suffer this, I will suffer this as long as they don't have to. So what does he do? He tells them, you know what? You're right. We are guilty. So if you got to take one of us, take all of us. Take all of us. So he does. He tells them this. And Joseph says, I swear that I will not do this. The man in whose possession the cup was found will be my slave. The rest of you can go in peace to your father. Joseph is trying to push them to a point where you realize that no matter how good you think you are, there are conditions that will make you step outside of what you think it is to be holy. There are things that can challenge you, things that can push you to be something that you don't believe you are, but actually you are. That's why when things happen and we say, I don't know where that came from, that's not me. That was a different person you were talking to. That's not, that's not the real me. No, actually conditions can happen that will squeeze and push until the real deeply nested, deeply buried you will come to the surface. So the question is what comes out when you're pressed? Not about what comes out when everything's copacetic, That's the reason a lot of times when we pray, because things bad are coming up, we keep asking God, change my circumstances so that this bad stuff doesn't come up. Not, Lord, change the inner person that's here so that even when the bad stuff comes, the the ugly stuff won't come out. By the way, that is the context in which Paul uses the the passage that we love using as our self-help verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's actually the context. Paul says, I've learned what it means to be to be poor, to be wealthy, to be cold, to be warm, to be hungry, to be fed. What is he saying? No matter what things befall me, all the things that could tempt me to come outside of what it means to look like Jesus, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If I'm pressed, the ugly stuff's not coming out, because the ugly stuff is being transformed. So so here this is what Joseph is doing. Joseph is going, okay, you guys, you're starting to talk a good game. You're saying a lot of good things, and, and there's some things you're doing. That, but let me really push you. Let me put you up against the wall. I'm going to now tell you, guess what? The evidence is, is over, over, overwhelming. There's no way you can get out of it. One of you is guilty, and that person's getting ready to go to the slammer. The rest of you have to go. He's basically putting them in a position where they can still walk free still have their freedom, still have their money, still have all of their goods, still have their food, go back, they can drink, live, and be merry. They can go do that if they want and leave their younger loved brother like they did before. It puts them in the exact same situation. But see, this transformed, these transformed hearts, they don't respond the same way. That's also what it looks like when we genuinely are reconciled and we're genuinely repentant. A lot of times when, when people are in relationships and somebody is guilty of one thing and they, this is how you know that they weren't truly repentant because you can fall back into doing the very same thing. Now, it doesn't mean that we're always perfect, but what it means, the question has to be, did the work of transformation happen the first time? That's just a question. Did the work of transformation happen the first time? Or did the work of behavior modification happen the first time? So a lot of times within relationships, whether it's marriages or whether it's friends or whether it's a a business, a lot of times the best we can do is just put some guidelines in place to help govern the way you behave so that you don't do these things again. But those things don't really do a whole lot to figure out what's happening on a heart level. It doesn't. That's what the work of the gospel does. That's what the work of God's redemption does. And so these men are now moved in such a way where they're like, We're going to lay ourselves on the line. And look at what Judah says. Judah approached him and said, my Lord, please let your servant speak personally to my Lord. Judah steps up and starts advocating. He was never the advocate. It's no surprise that Judah's descendant ends up becoming Jesus, the lion of Judah, the great advocate, right? Judah comes up advocating, going, okay, uh, listen. And it's funny because a lot of Hebrew scholars bring up that this almost looks like he's speaking in incomplete sentences. He's really, really nervous and scared. He's really trying to figure out the right things to say because he's just trying to entreat himself to this ruler just to be able to plead for his brother. He could have easily turned, cut, and run, and he doesn't. Look at what he says. He says, do not be angry with your servant, for you are like Pharaoh. Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? He starts reminding Joseph of what he did. He's almost, this is like kind of one of those, what had happened was moments, right? It's kind of like, okay, listen, this is how it went down. I know that, you know, let me remind you of some things you said. Remember when you told us not to, you told us this was going to happen. You told us to go back to our father. Okay, we did. We went back to our father and you told us to bring our little brother. And, and my father was really scared. He didn't want that to happen because he lost his other brother. He's just almost rambling, just bringing up all these things because he wants to prove. Let me just explain to you emotionally and spiritually what's been going on in our family. Let me just lay all of this down for you so you know that we're innocent. <clears throat> he does. And he starts laying all this down. And we have an elderly father and a younger brother, child of his old age. The boy's brother is dead. He's the only one of his mother's sons left. And his father loves him. And you told your servants, bring him to me so that I can see him. But we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. And if we were to leave, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, if your younger brother doesn't come down with you, you won't see me again. And this is what happened. When we went back to your servant, my father, we reported to him the works of my Lord, the words of my Lord. But our father said, go again, And buy us a little food. And we told him, we can't go unless our younger brother goes with us. And if our younger brother isn't with us, we cannot see the man. And your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One is gone from me. I said he must have been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him again. If you also take this one from me, and anything happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs down to Sheol in sorrow. There is something here that we cannot miss. Because, listen when you know that you are guilty against hurting someone else, this is the one thing that I think we can so easily overlook. And that is, when I hurt you, I don't just hurt you. When I sin against you, I don't just sin against you. Do you realize what kind of relationships we would have with each other if we realized that when we hurt each other with our mouths or our behavior or our thoughts or what have you, if I thought that when I hurt you, I'm actually grieving my father, would I still do it? See, that's where the real heart starts getting tested but you feel justified in saying what you said about this person, or you feel justified in doing what you did to this person, and you don't even feel the, just the slightest sense of mourning and brokenness, in the fact that not only have you harmed your brother or sister, but you have grieved the heart of your father. See, true reconciliation realizes that there are always at least two people that are harmed, two beings that are harmed. The person who's harmed immediately in front of you, and the God who's redeemed both of you. And if you don't see that, you're probably not a reconciler. And you might, might not understand the gospel. So this man, Judah, is not only talking about how much he wants to make sure his brother is okay, clearly broken about what's happened already, but he's telling Joseph, I don't want to harm my father either. I don't want my father to grieve. I what would happen if every time you look at people that maybe you've hurt or been hurt by, what would happen if we viewed all of us together like a Joseph and a Benjamin and we, and we viewed God the way they view Jacob? How might we treat each other? What would it look like for, you know what would happen if we really viewed it that way? If we really thought, I've grieved God's heart with the way I've hurt this person. I for sure better not come and partake of communion until I make that right. I've grieved God's heart in that way. You know what it would look like? We would be racing to each other to make it right. We would be racing to each other to make it right. We wouldn't even be able to, to before we get coffee and just do all the fake Christian talk that we are prone to do, we would actually get in each other's face and go, what do I need to do to make this right? That's actually what a heart of a reconciler looks like. Judah immediately goes to Joseph and lays it all out and says, this is what happened. I don't want to harm my father again. I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I want to give it back. I don't want to harm my father. He says, so if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his life is wrapped up with the boy's life. When he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Then your servants will have brought the gray hairs of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, If I do not return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Do you feel that sense of guilt when you harm another brother or sister? Do you? I hope for some of us, this is like new. I hope for some of us, we're like, my goodness, I've never thought about it this way. I've always thought about it like, if they've legitimately hurt me, then whatever. I'm just gonna do whatever I have to to them. Or if they say I've hurt them, but I don't agree that I've hurt them, then I'm just gonna leave it alone because that's on them. That's a them issue and it's not a me issue, right? Have I even done the work to figure out, man, is this legitimately something that I've done to harm someone? Why? Because the stakes are this high. The stakes aren't just, oh no, I'm not gonna be friends with them. The stakes are higher oh no, God might be very much grieved and displeased with me. My relationship with God is being affected by my lack of reconciling with my brother or my sister. You see how high those stakes are? They're like really, really high. That's the reason why so often the scriptures are calling us into community. That's the reason why the scriptures use plural pronouns when talking about us. You know, the Lord's Prayer doesn't start with my father. It starts with our father. Why? Because we're supposed to do this in community. It's never meant to just be you and Jesus. Ever. Yes, we've said it a million times. We didn't make it up. Yes, your relationship with Jesus is personal, but it is never private. So what does it mean? What does it mean for you? What is rec- how important is reconciling to you? Because that actually is the true test of a humble, repentant heart. And so now you see what Judah says. He says, if I don't return him, I'll bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Now, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. Here's something else that happens when you have a repentant heart. When you have a repentant heart, you don't even care what happens to you with your efforts to reconcile. You do it without regard of what might come your way. You do it without regard. He's like, listen, I just want to make sure that my father's heart is glad, make sure my father's heart is not broken. So if I, Judah knows he didn't steal anything, but he's like, if I have to pay the price, then let me pay the price so that my brother can go free. That, what is it for you, especially if you've been one that's harmed someone or hurt someone, what is it then for you to go, you know what, I'm going to come in and I'm just going to fool me a couple. I'm going to share everything. I'm going to lay myself on the line and I will lay myself at their mercy. And I don't even care how it makes me look. Sometimes, sometimes, we like to apologize in a way that we can still hold on to a little strength. We like to apologize in ways that we can still have a little bit of the upper hand. We don't want to feel like, you know, we, we don't want to feel like that we're uh, worse than we are. And so, you know, we, we might apologize and go, yeah, but you did, you didn't need to do that though, right? Yeah, but you know, if I hadn't, you know, if, if you hadn't said that, I wouldn't have gone there, but still, I'm sorry. Because we, we just want to retain a little bit of power in the, in the story, a little bit of power in the conversation. I don't want to feel like that. But Judah's kind of like, I, I'm done with power. I'm done with personal gain. I'm done with trying to find ways to exalt myself and aggrandize myself. I'm, I'm past that now. If I have to look like the warmest, worst person in order to be able to bring about genuine reconciliation, I will do that because God's heart is worth that. That is what moves Joseph. And that is what moves those who have been hurt or harmed. You see, it's hard when you see someone who is completely broken by their sin against you and their sin against God. Now you, now you start going, okay, if I know that that is the compass by which you live, I can begin to trust you again you realize that it's not always just about the severity of the sin. Yes, I'm not saying that every single sin can be handled this way. There are certain sins that bring heavy consequences for sure. There are certain situations where you could say, I don't know if I'll ever get to a point where I can trust this, but still, that does not absolve the person for trying to work for reconciliation until the day that they die. If I've harmed you horribly... You may not ever get back into the same kind of relationship you were with me, but that should never govern how far I'm willing to go to keep reconciling. I keep reconciling until the day you or I die. And hopefully on the other side of eternity, we are sitting fully reconciled again. But for me, because I want to still please God, you know what pleases God? Not just the outcome. He pleases the journey. What does it mean for me to constantly be a reconciler? Yes, I know you still don't trust me, but I'm going to continue to be, do this work of repenting until my days are done. Yeah. That's actually what it looks like. See, sometimes that's what we'll do is we'll be like, well, I tried and I tried and I tried, but they didn't respond the way that I wanted. You know why? Because my repentance was outcome-based. It wasn't truly God's, based in God's glory. It was based on a certain outcome. and when not, Because I still feel entitled to the right outcome. And because I didn't get that outcome, now it's a you issue because I did my part. I did what I was supposed to do to be able to reconcile. You didn't seem to want to. Now, don't get me wrong. There's work that's got to be done on those. If you've been hurt and harmed, there's work to be done as well. Hey, I want to make sure that I'm not living in a place of bitterness because, because that also does incredible damage to us. And we see that here. But here's what happens. The moment this kind, of reconcilia- this kind of repentance and reconciliation happens, look what happens to Joseph. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all his attendants. Think about this. This is how you know Joseph was never rooted in revenge here. Joseph is just waiting with bated breath, just bursting, hoping for an opportunity to reconcile. You see, if you've been hurt, but you are in God. You are in Jesus. There should be something in you that's going, I just want any reason to be able to be reconciled again. I just want a reason. Uh, and, and again, it's not just outcome-based either. It's not just like, I just want a reason to believe that I can be happy the way I thought I was going to be happy. I just want a reason to believe that I'll be able to have the job that I thought I was going to have. And if you're going to apologize and that's attached to the promise, then I'm there. No. Ultimately, it's like, I want to be reconciled to my brother or my sister, and I want a reason to believe that the stuff that was there that caused the break, that caused the fissure, I want to believe that that's been transformed because I want to be reconciled. That's supposed to be our heart too. I want to be reconciled. So Joseph is just brimming with hopeful, this idea of like, this can really change. They are really changed. I might get my brothers back and I might get them in the right way for the right reasons. So he called out, and he said, send everyone away from me. And there's a lot of theories as to why he does this, right? Because he's got all these Egyptian servants and all these people around, and who knows? We don't know if everybody knew that he was a Hebrew at the time. We know some knew, but we, we don't know if everybody knew, because he's high up now. He's super high up. There's all kinds of people that work under him, and they don't know anything about his backstory. They just know he is real crazy with the dreams. They don't know anything else. And so, so at this point, it's been years and years that he's been in this position. And so, for whatever reason, he casts all them out, everybody out, everybody out. And he wept. He said, "says No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers." But he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. You know, it's something about when you are reconciling and you've been waiting for reconciliation, you don't even care how it sounds or how it looks. You're like, I've been, that's how you know that there's almost this, this prodigal response. Like he's just so overwhelmed. He doesn't care who, who, how it looks. He doesn't care how it sounds. He's just wailing and weeping and crying with joy. And he wept so loudly the Egyptians heard it and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they couldn't answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Again, because here's the thing, he's been trying to see where their hearts are right now. They have no idea where his heart is. They don't know. And, and sometimes, this is, this is kind of a little bit of a lesson for us too. If you've been the one that's been the offender, you don't necessarily get to call them to the same thing in the moment, you're the offender. So you don't get to go, well, let me see your heart first. I'm not gonna start repenting unless I know where your heart is. That's, that's a manipulative move. That's actually not a heart that's rooted in genuine reconciliation, though. Because, again, the person who's afraid of walking back into a toxic environment, they should not be the first to lay everything out because they can be taken advantage of again. So, So ultimately what needs to happen here is I, Joseph, hold my cards close to the vest until I can see that it's safe to put them back on the table. Now they're safe to put them back on the table. Now we can continue the game. So here's what happens. They are sitting back and they're looking and he pulls off his garb and they see it's Joseph. Looks a little bit different. It's been a couple of decades, but they see him. And they're terrified because now they're like, what's getting ready to happen now? Has he been doing this? The question that was asked to me earlier this morning, that's why it's a great question. They're going, oh, maybe he was testing and punishing us all this time. That must be what this is. We are getting ready to get demolished now. He wanted to humiliate us in front of everybody first. Now that he's humiliated us, he's getting ready to just completely harm us. And listen, there are some people that is exactly how, what they want to do when they've been hurt somebody begins to open up and share and say, I'm sorry. And then it's like, yeah, you should be sorry. You know what? I'm going to make you sorry. You're going to be sorry for the next five years. I'll stay with you, but I'm going to remind you over and over again. That's what starts happening, right? I want to make you feel that pain. I want to make you know just how harmed I was. I just want to make sure that you, on some de- to some degree, can feel the things that I felt. So they're worried about that because guess what? That's our nature. So that's a pretty understandable assumption. And yet, Joseph looks at them, they're terrified, and look at how he responds. He says, He says again, please come near to me. And they came near, and he repeats again, I'm Joseph, your brother, the one you sold into Egypt. Now he has to say that, because here's the thing, he's not just overlooking it. A lot, this isn't a matter of him just forgive and forget. He remembers, and he's telling them, Yes. I'm Joseph, I'm the one that you did wrong. Here's specifically what you did to me. However, he doesn't live there and doesn't stay there. Yes, I'm the one you sold in Egypt. And now, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here, because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. I pray that, that, that my heart would get to this kind of point. But, I, but our hearts need to be able to get to that kind of a point. Because here's the thing, Ultimately, Joseph is not doing. Sometimes we make forgiveness and reconciliation into this thing of like, yes, we forgive and we forget. No, we don't forget it. We remember the pain. We remember what's there. We don't live under the shame of it any longer, but we remember the pain. You know, in many ways, that pain actually serves as a catalyst to say, I never want to go back to that. I never want to be that again. I never want to do that to someone else. I will never forget what it is that I've done, the pain that I've caused. I'll never forget that. But, but beyond that, here's something else that happens, and this is something that's very difficult for me. I take it it would be very difficult for almost everybody in this room. Joseph has just gone through just this horrendous time for decades. He's gone through being sold into slavery. He's gone into being falsely accused. He's gone through being thrown into prison. He's gone through all this stuff. And he's had these incredible highs as well. But something about actually living in community with God's people and what it means to be in true relationship with God, it leads you to a place where you go, even the painful stuff, even the hurtful stuff, it doesn't mean they're good. We said this before. Yes, all things work together for your good. All things are not good. There is a distinction there. All things aren't gonna be good. And you, we can definitely call out the things that are not good. But what happens is, if my relationship with God is where it should be, then I finally get to a point and I go, Lord, how are you using this ugliness to actually bring about the beauty of your word? What, how, how do I see? What am I supposed to see? I may not even see it until I'm on the other side of it. Joseph somehow got to this place where he went, yes, you hurt me. Yes, you harmed me. But the things that you meant for evil, God meant for good. This is one of the hardest principles for us because at some point we've got to go, Lord, You, there is something God is bringing about. His eternal decree. We don't know everything he's doing, but there's something he's doing, and he's using everything. You know what I love about this? It means that God actually doesn't waste any of it. He doesn't waste any of it. That does not mean go look for the worst possible situation to get into so that you can say, look at what God can use, Right? But if anything, this is the ultimate picture of what theologians call compatibilism here. And you see it as, as, he, as he continues to talk through. You start seeing the ways that he's sharing, and he, and he starts kind of laying out some of the stuff. He says, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. This is one of the first passages that you'll see theologians look to as this great picture of compatibilism. What are the two things that are are compatible here? Yes, God has his eternal decree. God is completely sovereign. He is in control of all things. And yet we have our decision-making. We have the, the choices we get to make. We have a degree of will that we can choose to do a thing. And somehow in the midst of that, I would never even begin to try to prove how they connect perfectly. But somehow in the midst of that, God is saying, and yes, I'm still sovereign over all of this. Even in the midst of your, yes, you make your decisions that will cause harm or cause good to happen. But somehow, somehow God says, even the things that you think you're controlling, even the things you're doing that are harmful, somehow I'm still using to bring about my eternal decree. There's got to be something in that, even for those of us who have been harmed. All of us in this room have been hurt or harmed in some kind of way, and we become crippled because we ultimately are like, well, because that bad thing happened, I can't possibly believe that God is good. I, can't, I, I, I deal with this all the time myself. You can easily look back in the past, and you see things that have happened, things that shouldn't have happened, things that should have happened, and you're like... If God is good, why would he let this thing happen? If God is good, why would he not have stopped that thing from happening? If God is good, why would this person have had to have been abused this way? If God is good, why would I have had to have been bored in such a horrific environment? Where is God? Joseph can be asking those very, I'm sure he did ask those very questions. If God is good, why am I in jail? If if God is good, why why am I enslaved by Ishmaelites? If God is good, why did he give me brothers that don't love me? See, you can ask all of that. And yet somehow, some way, Joseph gets to a place where he goes, I didn't know this before, but I'm able to look back and see. And he didn't just look back at the things that had already occurred. He's actually hearkening back to what we see all the way back in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, when God makes the promise to Abraham. And he starts telling him what's going to happen to his descendants. You see, this is is why it's so important for us not just to look at our circumstances, but still go back to God's word. Because sometimes your circumstances will leave you with no hope, no joy. All you have is despondency. All you have is this place of like, I have no hope. I have nothing. God is not there. My circumstances tells me so. He looks back. Remember what God told Abraham. Verse 13 of chapter 15, he says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. Those of y'all waiting for a word from the Lord, is this the one you want? (laughs) However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward, they will go out with many possessions, but you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age In the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. You know what Joseph is really saying? Joseph is going, remember that promise that God made? Sometimes we got to go back all the way back to what God originally promised. Because circumstances might make you doubt God's promises. And I have to go back to God's promises first and say, I don't see where these circumstances are leading, but I know what God promised would happen. And so on some level, I need to stand on the promises of God and not what my eyes are telling me. Not even what my heart is telling me. Because it will fail me. And Joseph is reminding him of that. Listen, yeah, y'all did this to me. You harmed me, you hurt me, it hurt. I still have to deal with this. But I can look back and I can look forward and know that the promises God made, somehow He used your ugliness to bring about His perfect promise. And guess what? Now all the tribes of Israel are preserved. Why? Because in many ways in many ways, the things that they did, right, the ways that they sold out their brother, they sold out their brother only for him, to be, for him to become their deliverance. Think about that. They sold him out. They left him for dead, and now he's the one that brings them life. There's, there's something interesting about how God often does this, how, how the things that you think are going to take you completely out. And somehow God says, yep. And I'm getting ready to reverse this whole thing. And this is where life's coming now. And we need to be thankful for that because sometimes we're the ones that are bringing that death stuff in. And then we sit in shame knowing I'm the one that actually caused this. I'm the one that this is for, for a lot of us. We need to know if I've ever been the person that's caused the harm. You know, a lot of times people feel like I've already caused this much damage. What's the point? There's nothing else that can happen. I'm never going to make it up to you, so what's the point? That's when you realize, when you remember that it's more than just one person that's hurt here, and you start thinking, man, God's glory is worth, even if I have to make a fool of myself for the rest of my life, this is what I do. And you look at how this begins to end, and, and Joseph starts telling them, so he makes it clear to them, you need to know that God was the author still in the midst of all of this. He says, return quickly to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me without delay. You can settle in the land of Goshen and be near me, you, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, all you have. There I will sustain you, for there will be five more years of famine. Otherwise, you, your household, and everything you have will become destitute. There he is again. Hey, I was the one that you actually left for dead, and now I'm the one that's getting ready to bring you life. Look, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin can see that I'm the one speaking to you. Tell my father about all my glory in Egypt and everything that you've seen and bring my father here quickly. And then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin wept on his shoulder. Joseph kissed each of his brothers as he wept. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. What was that conversation like? Like, I just am wondering, like, were people kind of like posturing, like, you know, Reuben's coming up. Hey, listen, I came back to the pit, man. You weren't there. I was going to save you. The rest of them, they're wilding, but, but, but I was getting ready to come save you. Like, what were those conversations like? I just wish I could have, I wish it was recorded somewhere. But whatever it was, they're having this kind of, re, this, this reunion, if you will. They're beginning to be back in relationship with their brother they haven't seen for decades. And then they begin to head home. And then finally, as you look at just the very end of this when the news reached Pharaoh's palace, Joseph's brothers have come. Pharaoh and his servants were pleased. Now, we don't know everything Pharaoh knew, but Pharaoh knew enough. He knew enough, and he probably knew a lot about him, but he knew enough to be, to be thankful and to be happy. We don't know what's happening in, in this particular Pharaoh's heart at this time, but all of a sudden, when he sees that Joseph's brothers are here, he also becomes incredibly generous. And and there's a lot of theories here, but there's something about when the people of God are around other folks, there's something that starts to bleed on the people. When when you're a gentle, kind, compassionate, generous person, there's something about God's generosity that begins to bleed on the people around you. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh's going, he hears it, and he he almost actually adds on to what Joseph already promised. Because when he hears about it, Pharaoh says to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and go on back to the land of Canaan. Get your father and your families and come back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can eat from the richness of the land. You're also commanded to tell them this. Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your dependents and your wives and bring your father here. Don't be concerned about your belongings for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Now, this right here is crazy because Joseph is like, yo, get everybody Tell them to bring their stuff. They're probably bringing their tattered, messed up clothes, holes, patches, probably don't smell so good. He's like, listen, grab the things you absolutely need, everything, you, you, everything else you need, I got you. The finest things here I'm giving to you. Now, ask yourself this. When you know you've been guilty, how does it make you feel when all of a sudden you just get blessed? You know, one one scholar put it this way, when people need, when people are hard, they're hard-hearted, and they're harsh, it's really difficult for you to see how they could ever become gentle. But it's interesting that when people are hard and harsh, and they know they deserve harsh punishment, and then they get gentleness, and then they get like this kind of grace and mercy they've never seen before, something changes. Something, you're like, I know that I deserve so much punishment, and yet I'm not getting it. Not only am I not getting it, but I'm getting this incredible, abundant, bountiful blessing when I know I don't deserve it. That's what Israel, that's what the children of Israel, that's what all of these tribes, these forefathers, these patriarchs, this is what they receive from Joseph through Pharaoh. And he says, the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them wagons as Pharaoh had commanded, and he gave them provisions for the journey. But look at what Joseph does. He gave each of the brothers clean a change of clothes, but he gave Benjamin 300 pieces of silver and five changes of clothes. Now, why did he do that? He, it's his brother, right? And so he may love him. I think it's something interesting here that he actually doesn't say he wants to make sure that the brothers, their love and their repentance is not rooted in their idea of even equality here. Because ultimately, they may still be like, all right, that's fine. We're gonna we're treating you just like us now, so now we can show you that we love you. Hey, but what happens if he actually gets some things you don't get? Are you going to flip back into your old heart posture? That's a big question. A lot of times, we are completely conciliatory as long as things keep going well enough for us. But if there's a perceived slight, will you jump back into old habits? If there's a perceived misstep on some part, will you jump back into old habits? So he gives his brother more than he gives the other brothers. He sent his father the following, 10 donkeys carrying the best products of Egypt, and 10 female donkeys carrying grain, food, and provisions for his brothers on the journey. And Joseph sent his brothers on their way as they were leaving, and he said to them, don't argue on the way. Why did he have to say that? Now, one, one Hebrew scholar put up a uh, uh, posture and actually said that the Hebrew here really means don't engage recrimination. Now, why does he have to tell them that? Because y'all, be human for a minute. What in the world are these guys thinking? They're getting ready to go back to their dad. Guess what they have to tell them? Good news, Joseph's still alive, which means we've been lying to you this whole time. How's that conversation going to go? Like, the dad probably has already been suspecting that they've been lying. He hasn't really been trusted them much, but now they've got to flat out admit Okay, Dad, you're right. We've been, we've been making stuff up. We, 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 we lied. You're right. They've got to go back through all of that. that. That coat that we gave you that was soaked in blood, that wasn't Joseph's blood. That just shows you just how shady we actually have been because we spent the time to rip this coat apart, dip it in blood that we killed, a goat that we killed, bring it to you and try to convince you that the son that you love so dearly died, and we callously were just okay with that. So they've got to go and and explain all of this, right? Because they can't give that good news without the underpinning of all that bad news is there. And Joseph knows that. So Joseph's like, hey, as you're going home, don't start start finding ways to pass more blame on the one than the other. Because that's likely what would happen. You're getting ready to go, and it's like a bunch of y'all going back. And it's like, well, you were the one that actually came up with the plan, so I'm going to make sure I tell dad that too. That was you who said that. I mean, come on, Judah. We weren't going to say, we didn't have that idea. You had that idea. And that's probably what caused a lot of sniping on the way. No, that's not true. You're the one that did this and that. You're the oldest. You should know better. Like all of that would start happening. And what Joseph is trying to point out to them is now, once you realize there's freedom once you've laid all your sin out, you don't have to keep trying to defend yourself anymore. You don't have to come up with more excuses for why you did what you did. Because your sin now has been exposed and it's been forgiven. So the shame of it is gone. So they can go back. Yes, it might be hard. They may have to see the disappointment of the dad's face. However, they're going to be so overwhelmed by the joy because guess what? Real reconciliation is happening. And they're willing to endure whatever that means. I think the last thing as we close is this. When you think through all the ways that Joseph brings to them everything they don't deserve, When you think through the ways in which Joseph, it it, it totally takes him being an advocate for them because ultimately they realize, they're living in the shame realizing we've caused great damage, we've caused great harm, and we don't know how to fix it. What could they have done to fix it at that point? What could they have done? I mean, they, they did everything but kill him. What could they have done to try to make right what they did? There just isn't anything. What do you do when you know, man, I've, I've, I've gone so far and there really isn't anything I can do to fix it. But in order to be able to have real reconciliation, somebody, something has to be done. You see, for these men and what we've noticed and what we've seen in Scripture is they not only sinned against Joseph, they sinned against God and somebody had to actually stand in the gap for them. Somebody had to come in. In this case, Joseph stands in the gap so that they end up not having to pay this incredible price that they likely should have paid. The one who was harmed, the one who was sold out, the one who was left, the one who was rejected, what's the scripture say? Has become the chief cornerstone. You see, if you don't see this connection, you miss something really huge here. Because ultimately what we need is what these, these men needed. We need an advocate. We need somebody to stand in the gap. When you're finally convinced, and it takes a little bit of work to be able to be convinced, yeah, I'm guilty. It takes a little bit of work to be like, yeah, I'm not really a reconciler. It takes a little work to be like, yeah, I don't really repent well. Yeah, I have overlooked some ways I've really caused some real damage. Or I overlooked some heart postures that likely mean that I have a high propensity of causing some damage eventually. I need something else to change. I need some real transformation to happen. I need somebody to actually advocate for me. I need someone to be able to say, in the same ways that this famine was coming, this famine was coming, and they're like, we have no way of even facing this famine if somebody else doesn't go out ahead of us and bring what we need when danger comes. Yes. When you think about the words in First Peter, I'm sorry, in First John, and you think about how John writes about who Jesus is to us. And he talks about who Jesus is to us and the ways that we know him. Here's what he says. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. All right, that alone is like, wow, true, but heavy, because I know I don't keep them all, so I guess I'm gonna be guilty because I don't really know how to keep them all. The one who says I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word Truly, in him the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. Think about this for a minute. He's laying out this this massive thing. He's laying out kind of what the standard of perfection is. This is what it means now. Like we have this standard of perfection. If I don't keep this, I have no way of pleasing God. If I don't keep this, I stand completely guilty like these men stood before Joseph. We stand with blood on our hands. We stand with guilt at our feet, and there's no way to be able to make recompense. But look earlier than this. The very beginning of chapter 2, he said this, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. If we don't see all the ways in which we have been reconciled back to a holy God so that now we can give up our ideas of what it means to be right, the fear of being wrong, we actually are free to be a reconciler now. I don't have to, like, defend myself in the way that I have to prove that I'm innocent of all things. I can actually step back and go, you're right, I'm guilty. I'm completely guilty. And I'm not just guilty in sinning against you. I'm guilty in sinning against a holy God. And I'm so thankful I don't have to live in the shame of my own brokenness anymore. I don't have to live in the shame of all the ways that I am not perfect, all the ways that I am far from perfect, because I realize my advocate has stood in the gap for me. My advocate has paid the price for me, and my advocate has sent me back with grain, with silver, with money, with the ability to be a true reconciler, not rooted in my own gain, not rooted in my own self, but rooted in his glory, rooted in his grace. So may we be a group of people, a church that is so rooted in truly reconciling for the right reasons. We want to be reconciled to each other, and we need to be reconciled to God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, you are indeed uh, loving and merciful. God, as we look at this picture that's laid before us with Joseph and his brothers, we would be remiss if we didn't recognize all the ways that we are standing with those brothers. If we are standing with those that have caused pain and suffering, whether with our mouth or with our actions, or with our inaction, with our, in, our refusal to speak when we should have. God, I pray that you would lower our sense of self-importance, that we would not be so focused on looking like we're right. God, I pray that we are, so, you tell us in your word that he who wins souls is wise, not he who wins arguments. So God, I pray that even when we're reconciling, we're not just trying to be right, We're not just trying to win a conversation, God. I pray that we would be obsessed with winning over each other as we seek your forgiveness and as we seek being reconciled. Thank you for doing the work for us already. We just get to operate in the outflow of your reconciliation and your work. So God, when you make that true for us, let us not know anything else other than your reconciliation. Let us race to each other to be reconciled. God, we don't want to just be alone together. We want to be reconciled as your body. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we come to this table, we are reminded that we are truly called to be in unity. We are called to a table of common unity. And what we're saying we're united in is not just in all of the ways that we've been perfect to each other, we're not united in all the ways that we've kept every commandment to God. What we're united in is the one who has reconciled all of us has reconciled us to each other. So we realize, yes, my brokenness to God, I acknowledge, I see, I'm broken by it, and I seek out genuine repentance with my father, but I also seek out genuine repentance and reconciliation with my brother or with my sister. And if that's true for you, then this table of common unity is for you. We come to the table of communion to profess a thing that outside of who Jesus is, I don't have any hope of reconciling myself. I don't even have any hope of reconciling myself to you. If, if you and I are broken, me coming to this table without that truth, all I'm saying is I'm going to work harder to, to modify my behavior next time. But when we come with a heart of repentance, we come saying, I genuinely am coming seeking genuine heart transformation. And it may take a while. But God is breaking my heart over and over and over again. And I can't see anything else other than my desperate need for him day by day. If that's true. then this table is for you. If it's not, if for you, this is it, the idea of truly reconciling, that just seems a little far. It probably seems a little far because you don't really know just how much you've been reconciled to God, or you don't even know what Jesus has done to reconcile you back to the father. And so maybe take this time and actually process that. When Paul says to, to make sure that we take this not unworthily, make sure we examine ourselves, this is what we're examining. We're not just examining, do I have bad stuff in me right now? That I think about something bad? That I do something bad? It's deeper than that. Do I genuinely have a heart that seeks out reconciliation? Do I have a broken, repentant heart that wants to be reconciled to God and to others? Because if that happens, then trust me, during the time of your meditation, you're thinking through ways. You see things. You acknowledge things. You feel things. You remember things. And you're like, you know what? Yep, God, I still see these areas. You're still working on me. And I don't feel comfortable in those things, and I won't rest in those things. There's work to be done, and I trust that you're going to do it. So if that's not where you are, then you don't have to come and proclaim something that's not true. Because Jesus doesn't want you to come and lie. He doesn't want you to come and put a mask on. He wants to meet you where you are. And when you, it's so interesting because what he will do is he will start giving you this complete calm. You can bring all of your brokenness to him. And he's faithful and just. He tells us to to forgive us our sins. Because when God sees you, he's not coming with a mask. He's not coming with all the regalia. He comes, he meets you where you are and he shows you who he is. As our volunteers come, we wanna remind you that here at ICON we do communion by the process of intinction. So what that means is you'll come down the middle aisle, starting in the back, you'll take a piece of gluten-free bread and you'll dip it in wine or juice as you see fit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks for the Passover meal, a time that Jews would constantly remember all the ways in which God protected them, passed over, as long as they showed their faith and obedience, that he would pass over them and not let the angel of death touch them. They would celebrate this over and over. And to this day, many celebrate it over and over. And Jesus is getting ready to give thanks for that very meal that they had celebrated for thousands of years. And he says, this body, this bread is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. And in the same manner, he took the cup. He said, this cup, this cup is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, the blood poured out for the remission of sins. This is what actually reconciles us back to God. He's looking at people who are liars, who are cheaters, who are rebellious, people who would uh, uh, deny Jesus, turncoats, and he looks at them and says, this Is what it means for you to be reconciled back to a holy God. You're going to sin against me. You're going to sin against the Father, and I'm going to wash it all away. Take and drink of it and do this in remembrance of me. And here's what Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians. He says that every single time we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Why? This is not just religious ceremony, y'all. This is not just something we just do because this is what Christians do. I hope that for each of us, what we're saying is, my only hope in full reconciliation is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's not in my promises to you. It's not even in my promises to God. It's got to be in the finished work of Jesus. And if that's your hope, if that's what you trust, even when you know there's still brokenness, even you don't come here because you know you have it all together. You come here because you know you don't. And when you know that, and you still can rest and trust that Jesus is finishing this work in you, then come, be convinced, be reminded, taste and see that our Lord Jesus is indeed good. Let's eat together.